Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Nikolai Lido from LIB Solar, a community-based solar provider located in Liberia. We discuss the challenges of working in remote off-grid locations, the trade-off between environmental and social impact, the challenge of equity fundraising in solar, and even rebel groups. Nikolai begins our conversation by telling us how he got into the solar industry. I started my career in academia. My PhD work actually focused on measuring rural economies in conflict areas and also understanding the organizational challenges of running a rebel group, mostly in African civil wars. So I kind of came to solar in a roundabout way. But when I left academia, I was looking for opportunities on how to use data, especially micro-level data, and some of the operations experience I had running research projects in Africa for more commercial purposes. So uh, I thought pay-as-you-go, kind of off-grid solar was a great opportunity on the continent, and I could apply those skills to a business in that sector. So can you tell us more about LIB Solar? What is the focus of the company and, and what is its overall business proposition? So LIB Solar provides solar energy and solar lighting to rural communities in Liberia. And we take a community-based approach. So instead of selling to individual households one by one, we focus on selling to communities. So we'll host a series of community meetings. The community kind of as a whole decides whether to purchase our products. And if they agree, they have to appoint a payment collector from among their own people who's in charge of maintenance and payment collection and some basic customer service and is our sort of point person in that area. And so working in this way allows us to achieve some economies of scale, so we reduce our operating costs. And by working with communities like this, we also really increase our on-time payments because it creates kind of a social pressure to pay on time so that you have lights. Uh, You don't want to be dark when all your neighbors are lit up. It kind of boosts our revenue and lowers our costs, and we've been able to operate fairly successfully in that model. You've been working and focused on Liberia, which is not a particularly well-known country in sub-Saharan Africa. Why did you decide to start working there? And can you tell us more about Liberia, both from a social, political, economic standpoint and the state of its current energy infrastructure? Liberia is an extremely poor country. It had a war, a particularly nasty war that ended about 16 years ago, that devastated the economy. So there's no grid in Liberia. At the moment, you know, after 16 years of peace, I think about 3 or 5% of the capital city is connected to some type of publicly provided electricity. Everyone else is either in the dark, or if you're wealthy enough, you have some generators or, or something like that. So everything is privately provided in Liberia. So there's a huge opportunity for solar, but also big challenges. It has some of the worst road networks in the world. The people are a very limited spending power, and the population density is very low. So it takes a long time to reach people, and it's not even not even a lot of people. After the capital city, I think the second largest city in the country has only thirty or 40,000 people. So they're spread out in a lot of small villages separated by rough roads. So that scared away a lot of companies. You know, it's a small market, only four and a half million people. But there's also a lot of opportunity there. For one thing, they use the U.S. dollar 
and everybody wants light. So I've been working in Liberia for about 15 years, and I could understand the challenges. I could see why big competitors wouldn't want to come in there. But then I also saw that it's a market that you can really dominate and and really sort of make an impact if you can sort of put up with, with some of the difficulties. Great. And we'd love to speak more about the difficulties and the challenges that you face there. I suppose to begin with, could you tell us more about about the, the current solar industry in Liberia. You mentioned that there isn't much of a grid infrastructure um, in Liberia at the moment. What is the current state of the infrastructure like, both for the solar industry, uh, but also in comparison to other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, be that in West Africa or more broadly? Liberians have some of the lowest rates of energy access in the world. I mean, not only do they not have grid electricity, but they hardly any of them have access to a generator. So until recently, they're really just burning candles. They don't even have kerosene, really, um, because they can't afford it. It's either candles or some battery-powered lanterns, or in the past couple of years, they've been purchasing these D-Light Pico lanterns that are distributed through the total filling stations in the country. So you see very, very limited access to light and no businesses at all serving the consumer market. Uh, we're the only pay-as-you-go solar company in the country. You do see about four or five other solar businesses that are geared towards contracts. So the government and the World Bank and Mercy Corps and other actors have issued contracts for providing solar for schools and police stations and some government offices in rural areas in an effort to try to provide some lighting basic lighting in those areas and some refrigeration for clinics and things like that. But that's really the state of the solar sector. And unfortunately, a lot of even those limited projects have faced challenges with maintenance. So a lot of the solar systems and schools have have gone offline because there weren't any provisions for maintaining them. And households have, have lacked light entirely until recently. Great. I think this would be a great time for us to learn more about LIB Solar. How do you, does your business model work? You've spoken a bit about the community-based approach to distributing solar and solar energy systems and appliances. Who are your customer targets and what are the key challenges you're facing? So in many ways, LIB Solar is built backwards. We're, we're kind of structured in the opposite way of many pay-as-you-go solar companies. Whereas Many of the big players are tech companies that can scale in Africa. We're very much an African company that uses tech to scale. Instead of having a product and recruiting a whole bunch of commission-based agents to sell that product, we have the full-time staff that go out in the communities and we build up the structure from the communities back to our business. The, the limitations of a traditional pay-as-you-go solar model is if you're dealing with commission-based agents, they're going to go where they can make the most money. So that's typically urban areas where they can knock on a lot of doors and sell a lot of devices, and they earn their commission on on sales mostly. So that's led to a situation where most pay-as-you-go solar companies are confined largely to urban areas. And that's also reinforced by their dependence on mobile money. Because again, the, the technology of pay-as-you-go and depends on mobile money. And the need for scale of a technology company depends on recruiting hundreds of commission-based agents. We work very differently. Liberia is a small market. It's a very rural market. 
There's basically no mobile money penetration, very limited urban areas. So we don't really have the luxury of just going after the sort of wealthier urban market. We have to sort of systematically go through the population. But because we've structured our business differently, that works to our advantage. We can go to any village of 20 houses or 30 houses and pretty much sell to everybody there. And we kind of go through the map space by space, village by village, and we can sign up pretty much everyone. They all want light. At our prices, we, we make it affordable where even very poor households can pay for it. More than half of our customers live on less than $2 a day. They can still afford solar lighting. So we've built a very centralized organization in a sector that's, that's kind of very decentralized. But that's allowed us to operate very efficiently and become cash flow positive very quickly and, and profitable very quickly, which nowadays for you know newly formed pay-as-you-go solar companies, you don't have the luxury of a kind of big pots of money and lots of investors sort of lined up. So you have to kind of pull yourself up on your bootstraps and get your financials in order from, from day one. So the structure of our business has allowed us to do that, even in a very small market. And perhaps we could speak a bit about the structure of the financial approach that you're taking. What is the typical cost for solar for some of your customers? How much does it cost to install a system? How long are the payback periods and and how does it work for an end consumer? One of the advantages of Liberia is that they use the U.S. dollar. So we can price our products in U.S. dollars. We don't really need to worry about foreign exchange risk, at least not directly. So... In order to make the products more affordable, we've increased the payback period beyond what a typical pay-as-you-go solar company would do. So our customers typically pay off their goods in about two and a half years instead of the standard like 12 to 18 months that most businesses rely on. So that means we push our costs down for the consumer to about six to eight dollars a month. So that's now affordable for even poor households who would typically spend up to $4 a month just charging their phone, and then another $2 a month at least on candles or batteries. So uh, even during the payment period, they're spending about the equivalent amount of money to get a much higher level of service in terms of lighting and phone charging capabilities. And so we've seen once we sort of hit those magic numbers of 6 to $8 a month, the demand is unlimited. Everybody wants it. It's just a question of how much inventory we can keep in stock and how much money we can raise. We're able to install at fairly low cost and fairly efficiently because we work at scale with these installation teams. So a team of five people can do about 45 installations in a day. Uh, 45 households connected to light. And again, we can do that because the entire village or at least a a large number of people in the community have agreed to to purchase our product. So we can schedule an installation and go install all at once rather than making a three-hour trip through rough roads to do two or three installations and then coming back next week for more. We do the whole area in, in one go. So that keeps our costs quite low and we can maintain pretty healthy margins as a result. Great. And I believe LIB Solar started off working in the mini-grid space, but recently you've started to explore the solar home landscape. Can you tell us more about the differences between the two systems? And for our listeners who might not know much about either mini-grids or solar home systems, what are the benefits and the challenges of each of them respectively? We started with mini-grids for 
two reasons. And when I say mini grid, it's uh, we go to a village and we install panels and batteries and a shutoff mechanism in a central location. Then we run copper wires through the village. We connect all the houses to the wires. Then inside each house, they have their lights and their phone charging and, and whatever they want. The two reasons why we started with that approach about 18 months ago was at the time we could do it for about 10% cheaper in terms of hardware costs than the standalone systems that were available back then. The second reason, which was more important, was that in many ways this business model was based on some research I did in grad school on how villages raise money for public goods. And it turns out that villages are very effective at pressuring people to pay when they view it in their common interest. So if they need to fix a bridge or fix a road or you know purchase a new hand pump for their well, they can really lay on the pressure and get people to pay. So by installing a mini grid, it was a very visible reminder that they're in it together. And the community was responsible for collecting payment. And in that mini grid system, they either made their payment and they had their lights on or they didn't make their payment and everyone was shut off. So it was a collective punishment. And it worked extremely well, <laughs> aside from you know some ethical concerns. We didn't see that people were being unduly pressured or anything like that. Uh, for about the first 13 or 14 months of our operations, it, it, worked, it worked quite well. Liberia, however, is in the midst of an economic crisis, and it's also one of the wettest places on Earth. So during the heavy rains, which happens June through August or early September, uh, economic activity really slows down. And what we saw is that these communities that would always pay on time, they got to a point where 10 to 20% of their people all of a sudden struggled to make payments. And so instead of kind of ruining the good reputation of the community or instead of having their lights switched off, they would basically have us disconnect these people. So they would essentially exile them from the grid or exile them from lighting because you know we can't compel people to buy our product so if somebody doesn't want it anymore they're free to to leave the grid so instead of the customer wanting to leave the grid we would see the community come to us and say those people can't pay disconnect them and ultimately we would have to comply with that so during the rainy season we saw that we were losing a lot of the most vulnerable customers but that they would still be good customers. You know, maybe they needed to skip a month of payment or something like that, or maybe instead of paying $8 a month, they could pay $6 a month. And mini grids really didn't let us reach those people. Um, the mini grids were also quite limited. We could only do villages of a, a certain number of houses, and the houses had to be pretty close together. Fortunately, we forecasted some of these issues a couple months before the rains hit, and we we decided to switch over to standalone systems, which were now even cheaper than the grid. And so for the past few months, we've been doing standalone systems with excellent results. So instead of having the the fairly intense social pressure of everyone has to pay or we all lose our lights, we realized that the more subtle social pressure of, ah, if I don't pay and everybody else pays, I'm going to be the only dark house in this community. That loss of status has been just as effective at getting people to pay. So we actually see our payment rates have gone up with the standalone systems compared to the mini grids when we expected them to actually be significantly lower. 
But again, the only reason why we can maintain that is because of this community sales model where essentially everyone in an area has the system uh, at the same time. If they were individual houses or if people were living in a city, they wouldn't feel that pressure. You know, and I think our payments would, would drop significantly, or at least that's what I've seen among other pay-as-you-go companies in other countries. You mentioned there's a challenge of not having mobile access to mobile money within Liberia. How does your payment collection system work? Do you have individual members within the community who are responsible for payments collection and then they collect payments and pay this money directly to LIB Solar? One of our requirements is that every community has to appoint a payment collector from among their own people. And they can appoint whoever they want. But this is somebody who really knows everybody's business and in some cases can even loan people money to make their payments if they need it. So they pick someone and this person collects all the funds and uh, meets our staff who comes once a month to the community and collects the funds from them. So instead of us trying to run after people for six or eight dollars a month, uh, which just would never make sense financially, we collect an average of $250 at a time from the payment collector. At the moment, we collect almost all of our payments in cash. As mobile money becomes you know, more common, we can shift to more of a mobile money-based approach. But this community-based payment collector has been very effective in most cases, and they receive a commission off the top for their efforts. Now, these payment collectors also help us with maintenance and customer service, and more importantly, they identify the highest value customers for additional products. So we recently introduced a business product that has a commercial refrigerator, a much larger solar panel, lights, and a fan, everything you'd need to kind of run a restaurant or small shop. And these community payment collectors are the ones that help us find the most reliable businesses who, who are the most sort of trustworthy, best partners for us uh, for these products. At the end of the day, this network of payment collectors we have is is kind of our secret weapon for growing the business beyond basic lighting. And that's a great point for us to start discussing productive energy use. There is a lot of discussion within the off-grid solar sector about productive energy use and a great deal of interest and hope that this could be one of the things that really unlocks the potential for off-grid solar to move towards greater profitability. Can you tell us a bit about your approach to productive energy use? How do you think about the potential for productive energy use as it relates to helping people generate incomes? And how are you approaching the subsector within the industry? There's a tendency in the sector right now to view solar lighting as a panacea. I think there's still a lot of excitement and optimism in certain ways. There's a lot of studies that have been done saying, oh, solar lighting boost incomes or people do more productive activities or kids study after dark. I think a lot of those studies are problematic. I mean, the the methodology is lacking and um, I think the claims are misleading and can lead to some disillusionment, um, which is not to say lighting isn't important. Lighting is a huge improvement to quality of life. It doesn't need to boost their income. It doesn't need to make the kids do better at school. But the challenge is, you know, if people are paying for lighting, that means they don't have money to pay for something else. And at the end of the day, we can't grow as a business and the customers can't continue to improve their lives unless they somehow generate more money. And there's a lot of barriers to that that are, that are hard, that lighting doesn't solve. 
So, you know, it's a challenge to try to come up with what kind of productive use appliances, you know, can increase the size of the pie. So our, our first product is commercial refrigeration plus lighting for businesses. Our customers so far mostly use it to sell cold water, soft drinks, and beer, plus you know, maybe ice cream and a few things like that. And then they use the lights to stay open after dark. So we estimate that that product can increase the um, profits of a business by somewhere between $100 and $500 a month, depending on how they use it. Uh, and we finance that product for $90 a month. So for the entrepreneur, that product should be cash flow positive or profitable from day one. And that's really what we're looking for. We need products that boost their income so much that even during the financing period, the customers are better off. But if you think about it, that's still fairly limited. Uh, if someone's using commercial refrigeration to sell cold water or soft drinks, they're selling it to other members of the community. So the money is still just being circulated within the community. The real challenge is to figure out productive assets that can increase the size of the pie for everyone. One sector we've been really trying to get into is, is fishing. F fish traders and fishermen in Liberia lose 30% of their catch to spoilage because there's no refrigeration, the roads are rough, it's hard to reach the market, and even the catch they don't lose, they smoke it, which is lower value. So it kind of seemed like a no-brainer. Okay, you give them refrigeration, they should immediately boost their income. And that might still be the case. But the demand and uptake from fishermen and fish traders has actually been much more limited than we expected and surprised us. Because even if you have all of a sudden a place to freeze fish, there's still three hours of dirt road and not a reliable transportation system to take you to a market that's not necessarily set up for your catch. So we're running into these other factors that... Um, is more structural factors that are that are making the opportunities kind of a bit harder to find. But we spend a lot of time collecting data uh, among our customers, a lot of time trying to identify opportunities in the economy. And again, that's where our uh, kind of network of community-based payment collectors come in, is we constantly ask them for feedback and, you know, what would improve people's businesses in your community? Like, what would improve their lives? What would help them make more money? And we try to act on those. Liberia being one of the wettest places on earth, it also has almost entirely subsistence agriculture. There's no use of irrigation. There's no use of fertilizer. There's no use of improved seeds. You could see that as a big opportunity on the one hand. You could also see it as a big barrier because it doesn't really make sense to finance a solar irrigation system if they're getting 20 feet of rain a year and nobody has any experience with irrigation. <laughs> so it's, it's really hard to find these opportunities to finance. But we know the opportunities are out there. And we're, we're interested in opportunities that are not necessarily solar. I think financing boat engines could be really useful for fishermen and, and things like that. So we're trying to keep an open mind and, and create systems in place to systematically identify these micro-level opportunities that we can finance at scale. Great. And you spoke a bit about the social and environmental impacts that are often claimed for solar systems, and some of those may be exaggerated to some degree. Can you speak a bit about what your approach to impact has been? How do you think about impact as it relates to the off-grid solar sector and LIB solar? And how important is it for you as an organization and more broadly as you, you look at expanding the business as well? There's a 
tension between environmental impact and sort of climate impact and the poverty impact in the solar space that uh, is not typically talked about. So, for example, if you serve customers in urban Lagos, for example, and you're selling them solar-powered TVs and satellite dishes and things like that, you're making a huge environmental impact because those customers are spending a lot on diesel fuel every month for their generators to supplement an unreliable, fairly dirty grid. So your carbon impact is greatest when you're serving rich urban customers in African cities with unreliable grids you know, that are typically reliant on generators. But those people aren't in poverty. If you reach poor people, you like in our case, our customers have very limited spending power, but we're not really substituting much in terms of carbon. Um, only 15% of our customers have any access to a generator. It's typically a shared generator that they may have a couple hours a day of electricity, and that's only 15% of our customers. The other 85% are just using candles or batteries or, or something and have a very, very low carbon footprint. Meanwhile, we're taking solar systems from China, sending them in a ship halfway around the world, putting them on pickup trucks, driving hours through the jungle. You know, like that's a lot of carbon that we're emitting. <laughs> so like our green credentials for a solar company you know, are questionable. Not to say we shouldn't do it. Ideally, the customers we serve will one day have more spending power, and it's much better that they get their current through uh, solar than through small-scale generators, which they all aspire to buy You know, if solar weren't available. But by serving these customers uh, with limited spending power, we do make a big improvement in quality of life. They went from literally sitting in the dark. when you, If you get stuck out on the roads in Liberia at night and you pass through villages, you will see groups of people sitting in pitch blackness talking at 8 p.m. because there's no light. And then all of a sudden, they have light for their town hall. They have light for their houses. It's, I mean, it's an unbelievable transformation in their quality of life. But, you know, that's not necessarily improving their income or saving the planet. And I think those contradictions are totally fine. Again, I think the risk is when you try to oversell things then eventually there's a reckoning in the industry. And right now, solar, I think, pitches itself as all things to all people. We're saving the planet. We're alleviating poverty. You know, we're, we're kind of offering everything at once. And we need a much more sophisticated view on the trade-offs, you know, really to, to develop the sector further. That's great. And it would be helpful also to to think about and understand how your approach to fundraising has been different from other types of impact-oriented or solar-oriented companies. We're conducting this interview in, in San Francisco, at the in the heart of Silicon Valley, where there is a lot of money raised all the time by VCs and primarily through equity fundraising. But you've taken the decision to focus primarily on debt fundraising and, and grant financing. What has been behind your, your decision with this respect? Um, and how important is it then that you do have either impact-focused sources of funding, be that through grants or um, debt providers? Financing for solar seems to be in a real period of transition right now. In the early days, I think you saw a lot of companies that, that 
looked or at least acted a lot more like tech companies. Uh, they kind of created this pay-as-you-go technology. They're fully vertically integrated, like MCOPA. There was a lot of excitement there. And a lot of impact VCs and equity investors were sort of lining up for a piece of that. And with that, they, you know, the impact world always has this strange balance between this kind of Silicon Valley mentality of phenomenal scale combined with this kind of nonprofit mentality of, I don't know, saving poor people in Africa or something. That, you know, that was certainly instrumental in growing the sector. I think there's been a, a bit of a realization that solar companies are not tech companies, really, or at least they're not software companies. The marginal cost of serving an additional customer is not zero. You know exactly how much it costs to provide a solar system to a household. You also know exactly how much revenue you can hope to get from that household, or at least the maximum revenue. You know, if they're making 18 monthly payments of $10 a month, you know your maximum revenue is $180, and it might cost $120 to serve that customer. So so that makes equity a, a difficult proposition, I think. And I don't, you know, honestly, like if I had the money to invest as an equity investor, there's no way I would invest in a solar business you know, that, that wasn't my own, I guess, because you, you can't you can't hope for a 10x return from solar. And it's inherently debt fueled. You know, if you're not attracting as much debt as you can, you're kind of not doing it right. But what that means is that you've got you're always pushing the boundaries of your debt to equity ratio. And any little misstep at all, any little foreign exchange fluctuation, any macroeconomic change, any bad harvest is going to wipe out your equity investors. So um, the downside of equity is, is very real and the upside is very limited. Now, it's great that some you know, impact people have been willing to <laughs> take that and, and essentially take the losses. They're much less willing to do it now, uh, kind of in this sort of pay-as-you-go 2.0 world that we're in. Investors are, I think, much less likely to take bets on new companies that aren't even the big players. So what that's left us is, is kind of cobbling together you know, grant funding, which, which has been great. Um, I think it's also more limited, but it still provides a lifeline. And, and then also debt funding, and it forces us to be extremely efficient with our operations so we get the most mileage possible from debt and can even fund the business almost entirely through debt. So in the case of LIB Solar, I have some equity in the business that comes out of a home loan, you know, backed by my house. That's our equity. And the remainder has been debt financing. And we've had to be extremely disciplined and make the most of everything we have so that we can make those debt payments. But fortunately, we can. And uh, you know, by using grants to kind of get us to the next level, we should be able to to keep growing that way. But it's it's a very different approach than the extremely rapid scale of, you know, we're going to go from zero to 20,000 households a month that, uh, that MCOPA and, and some of the big players took which um, you know, ended up being 
in a lot of cases, <laughs> you know, it, it put them in a in a difficult financial position. And so, you know, you see the insolvency of Mobisol, you see the restructuring in MCOPA, that sort of scale first and deal with your portfolio health later is a luxury that, that I don't think companies can take anymore. But fortunately, we've been able to learn from those lessons and that those are valuable lessons. That's great. And as we talk about scaling and growing the business, it would be great to hear more about LIB Solar. What has been your progress over the last two or so years? How many households have been connected via LIB Solar? And what are your plans for the next three to five years and, and hopes for the company? We've only been operating for 18 months. Uh, and the first six months of that was piloting. So we currently serve about 3,500 households. We're adding five to 600 a month. So we're, we're growing. And uh, our plan is really, you know, we're really trying to dominate the Liberian market first and then you know, potentially grow beyond that. But we see a lot of opportunity in, in different parts of Liberia and then a lot of opportunity to constantly deepen our customer relationship. So instead of just trying to get lights to as many people as possible, we're trying to diversify pretty early on into different product lines. I always take a lot of inspiration from from the entrepreneurs I see on the ground in Liberia and in other African countries where I've worked, where it's probably better to call them multipreneurs rather than entrepreneurs. In really volatile economic and political climates, it's not good to put all your eggs in one basket. You want to be <laughs> diversified from the start so that if one part of the country or one product line or even one country entirely starts to go south, you have something else to fall back on. We take that to heart where from the start we try to systematically test new product lines and, and launch them even as we scale our existing product lines. So we certainly scale much slower than most companies, but we've really tried to emphasize you know, making sure our repayment rates stay high and taking a data-driven approach to deepening our relationship with our existing customers. Our approach works well in really dysfunctional, you know, mostly rural countries that are kind of overlooked in the global markets. Like I don't think we would do well in Nigeria, but we could do well you know, in... Um, parts of Congo or you know, Central African Republic or you know, all the, you know, some border regions of, of Liberia. I tend to think of our expansion strategy more in terms of, of regions within a country rather than a country on its own. We have a fairly modular organization. So right now we've got one main office with a certain organizational chart and we can kind of cookie cutter that office into other regions. So the team we have now is the most efficient team for servicing about a four-hour radius around the office. So we can drop in other offices, and they'll be operating at full capacity, serving a four-hour radius around that office, which means we could go into a fairly competitive market like Cote d'Ivoire, which is right next door to Liberia. It's the fastest-growing economy in Africa. It's attracting a lot of big players, a lot of investment. We see some gaps in where they're operating, you see the big players tend to operate where you would expect, like in the highly populated, wealthier parts of the south and east of the country. So when we look at it, we're like, hey, well, the north and the west, the kind of what, what they used to call the wild west of Cote d'Ivoire is, is still a blank spot on the map. So we could potentially drop an office there 
and be perfectly happy operating at full capacity and even just stay off the radar of you know, these other big companies that are doing 10,000 households a month in Abidjan or, or wherever. So our growth plan is we're always kind of intrigued by these blank spots on the map that are overlooked by the multinationals because they're just too hard. The local dynamics are too difficult. The logistics are too difficult. That's where we excel. Uh, I mean, most of our people operate on motorbike, so we can cover large distances and rough ground. And a lot of our operations are kind of automated in a way that would allow us to open up offices fairly easily. So that's how we think about growth. But again, um, we prioritize the health of our portfolio above growth. So you know, we would rather grow a little bit slower and maintain a really high repayment rate than take a bunch of chances at the same time and, and risk the health of our portfolio more broadly. So we're, we're trying to grow systematically. We're in the process of opening up our second location in Liberia right now to double our installation capacity. Great. So we'd like to end with some questions to get to know you a bit better. Um, and it's what we call our quick fire round. So to, to begin with, very simply, where did your company's name come from? LIB is an affectionate nickname for Liberia that you know a lot of Liberians refer to their country as LIB. Uh, but in all honesty, it came from a domain search. Uh, LIB.solar was kind of the shortest, most succinct <laughs> website we could find. So that sort of close the deal for us. Great. Are are there any books that you recommend to our listeners or books that have changed the way you think or influenced your thinking on the development of the off-grid solar sector? So my background's in academia, and I actually, I wrote a book on mostly about Liberia, but also about how rebel groups kind of operate and the challenges they face. So this may like come across really badly, but Weirdly enough, a lot of the challenges that rebel groups face has really guided the way that I think about the business. <laughs> because when you're operating across large distances in a country where the legal structure isn't very strong, you have to think a lot about how to incentivize your staff. I mean, you don't like you literally don't want them looting your business from you. And you know, we deal in cash. So how do you get people to handle tens of thousands of dollars of cash? without them just pocketing it because you would have no real recourse. There's a huge body of like very theoretical academic literature on principal agent problems and, and incentives that, that I think has been weirdly helpful for this business just in terms of how we structure like lines of you know, command and, and uh, verify the actions that, that people are doing that, that's been helpful. Not to say that we're anything like a rebel group, but... Uh, <laughs> so which books would you recommend and um, how do you stop people from looting from your company? <laughs> well, the hardcore kind of organizations literature, you've got like uh, Akerlof and Cranton and David Kreps. They wrote about how corporate culture and monitoring works inside of an organization. You had to motivate people both with monetary incentives and with this sort of shared mission that's very important for us i think one of the more fascinating books is um, called stealing the state by solnik which is actually about the collapse of the soviet union but it looked at how organizations that that aren't very good at getting information from the bottom up end up collapsing under their own weight so 
in the Soviet Union, they would set targets. You must you know, produce this many nails. And so everybody would report, yes, we produce this many nails, despite what the reality is. In an organization like ours, we don't want to set a target, like you must sell this many units, or you must go to this many villages and contact people, because they're always going to say they did it. You really have to put structures in place where you're always getting feedback from the customers, you're always getting feedback from the staff, and decisions always have to be made based on good information from the bottom, which is, I think, maybe an obvious thing to say, but in practice, it's a little bit harder to implement it. But we, we view that, especially since you know I'm back and forth between San Francisco and Liberia, and, and I can't be everywhere at once. The only way I can know what's going on is by really having good channels of communication and really systematic reporting. So everything every one of our staff does all the time gets reported so that everybody who needs to know what's going on knows what's going on. Perfect. If someone is looking to get started in in the off-grid solar space, either as an investor or as an entrepreneur, what advice would you give them? It's an interesting time in solar in that I think there's greater opportunities for local entrepreneurs to be successful. The industry's entering a period of consolidation where uh, you have some big players that will be successful. You have some big acquisitions. I think a lot of the mid-sized players will get wiped out. But that leaves some niche markets that can be very profitable. Whether you would become a franchise of you know something like MCOP or D-Lite, or whether you just carve out your own sort of distribution market and the way that, that we have, there's an opportunity for for an entrepreneur to make a very good living and um, have a very good, healthy business in all of these parts of the map that the big players are just not going to go into because executing is just too hard in these places for a multinational that um, that's not committed to these smaller markets. So in that case, it's an exciting time. The challenges are, as always, financing. I mean, one of the reasons why there's so many white guys like me working in Africa is that I can call people in San Francisco and raise money. You know, most entrepreneurs on the ground in Africa don't have that luxury, even if they'd be better placed to execute than I am. So really solving that financing puzzle for local entrepreneurs is is the key. I think that's starting to happen. You do see more and more sort of country-focused, smaller players emerging, again, like us, but, you know, led you know, led by by people who you know have a even deeper understanding of the market. <laughs> Great, thanks very much. And and to close our conversation, what are your predictions for the off-grid solar sector in sub-Saharan Africa for the next five years? One of the core assumptions of our business is that basic solar lighting is going to spread much faster than even the optimistic predictions that are out there. Every day, I operate on the assumption that three to four years from now everyone's going to have solar lighting, even in Liberia. So the question is, what do you do next? What's the next step after solar lighting? And that's really an existential question for the business. Because if we, if you build a whole business around selling solar lighting, then you're going to be out of business in three to four years. So we view ourselves as really a financing and distribution company, where we know our customers better than everyone else, so we can identify what products are going to change their lives, what products they can afford to pay for, and we can get it to them efficiently. 
So I would be totally happy three years from now if we're not selling solar lights anymore and we're financing some kind of cool thing that, that makes people's lives better. And I think the industry is really going to be shocked and disrupted by that because you have this um, incredible scale, which is what's got us here. But you have companies like Mcopa and Delight producing basic solar lighting at an incredible scale. And so what happens after that? You know, where are they going to go from there? And I'm in, in touch with Delight, and I see them also thinking of these challenges and also thinking of what's next. But it's going to be exciting to see that. And I think, you know, this sort of SDG seven, you know, access to lighting, I think that goal is going to be going to be met faster and easier than people expect. And the exciting question is what comes next. That's a great note to end on. Nikolai, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your insights on your time. And we look forward to keeping touch. Thank you. That was our conversation with Nikolai Lido from LIB Solar. LIB Solar has a blog on Medium where they write about their experiences and insights from their work in Community Solar. If you found this episode interesting, we'd encourage you to take a look. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources, and contact details available.